Welcome to the first ever episode of Virtual Criminality. I'm Ian Higton, and in this podcast, I'll be combining two of my greatest passions, video gaming and true crime, into one gruesome whole. But what exactly does that mean? Well, each episode of Virtual Criminality will focus on a different video game villain, and I'll be presenting their fictional stories as fact, in the style of a true crime podcast. That means, along with all the usual gory serial killer stuff that you'd expect from a real-world true crime podcast, there'll also be times when we get to explore not only the fantastical, but the supernatural too. So, if, like me, you're into true crime, video game theories, and creepypastas, you, my friends, have come to the right place. In today's episode, I'll be taking a deep dive into the dark and disturbing world of the fearsome leader of a group of modern-day pirates. This charismatic but highly psychotic individual and his ragtag band of drug-addled followers have been linked to an untold number of crimes in and around the Indonesian archipelago known as the Rook Islands. These crimes include, but are not limited to, armed robberies, sexual assaults, drug smuggling, hijackings, gun running, human trafficking, and most recently, the kidnapping and attempted murder of a group of American tourists. But that's not even the craziest part. There's also proof of our subject's involvement in the murder of a high-profile celebrity, and, almost unbelievably, there are even hints that he was the mastermind behind the secret assassination of one of the world's most feared dictators. So, with all that said and done, welcome to episode one of Virtual Criminality and the story of Vas Montenegro. Not much is known about the early life of Vas Montenegro, aside from the fact that he was born in 1984 on the Rook Islands Archipelago in Indonesia, which, if you've never heard of it before, consists of two major islands, imaginatively titled the North Island and the South Island. This tropical paradise was once a place of peace and harmony, where the native Rakyat tribe lived and thrived alongside the flora and fauna of the island's dense jungles and lush green grasslands. There are no official records as to who Vars's parents were, mainly due to how remote a location the islands are, but according to members of the Rakyat tribe who were interviewed after his death, there were rumours that Vars and his older sister Citra were actually products of separate illicit relationships, put together at such an early age that they just accepted each other as siblings. Either way, Vars and Citra had an idyllic childhood, whiling away the hours playing football on the island's sprawling sandy beaches and exploring their way through the ancient Rakyat temples that lay hidden in the tangled forests near the southern shore of the archipelago's northernmost island. The pair were pretty much inseparable during those early years, but although they loved each other very much, Citra, the eldest by a year, was described as being very demanding, and it was said that she would often boss the younger, more impressionable Vas around. In fact, she was such a strong influence on him that it led some witnesses of those early years to even suggest that Vas's first kill may have been at Citra's behest. While some believe that the guilt following this murder was the initial trigger for Vars's descent into madness, many surviving Rakyat have a different and more concerning theory. One that is based on a not-so-heavily-guarded secret, whereby, during their late teen years, the siblings were regularly engaging in an incestuous relationship. 
Now, obviously, it's worth restating here that the pair have never officially been confirmed to be biologically related, but the fact that they had been brought up as brother and sister and saw each other as such makes the stories of these affairs rather hard to stomach. And believe me, there were a lot of stories. But how did this even happen? Well, Citra, it turns out, was seen to be a semi-divine figure by some of the more spiritual members of the Rakyat tribe. These shamans were convinced that she was destined to conceive what they called the ultimate Rakyat warrior. This perfect specimen, Rakyat legend said, would grow to lead the tribe, to see it reborn through the power of ancient deities and bring the Rakyat back to their full potential. Now, obviously, having this idea drummed into your head from such an early age would give anyone a bit of a god complex, but Citra lapped it up, and it didn't take long for Vas, who was already following her around like a puppy dog, to begin to believe that he was the one who was destined to be the father of Citra's unborn warrior offspring. At first, this idea remained as merely the romantic notions of an innocent child, but as the pair grew older and entered their teens, members of the Rakyat tribe would notice them slipping away into the forest together late at night. It wasn't long after that that the rumours began to circulate, and we're told that the pair would regularly be seen leaving the tribal grounds and heading to the nearby Island Port Hotel, where they would rent a room only to emerge the next morning. This troubling tryst was doomed to failure once Citra got wind of the gossip, though, and as it dawned on her what they were actually doing and what her fellow Rakyat was saying about them behind their backs, she soon began to feel ashamed by her actions. Vas, however, was only falling deeper and deeper in love, and even though Citra fought against her urges, he was always able to convince her to come back to him. Or at least he could, until one fateful night when the pressure of Citra's emotions became too much for her to take and she exploded into a fit of rage. According to witnesses from that night, she was seen fleeing the Island Port Hotel covered in blood and when staff went into her room to check on the commotion within, they found Vas lying on the hotel bed with a knife buried in his chest. The knife wound almost killed Vas that night as it narrowly missed an artery, but once it had healed, the scar it left did nothing to dissuade him from his obsession with Citra, who, having failed to break his heart the physical way, decided to try it again, but this time using emotions rather than cold steel. Citra began sleeping with other men, often in places where she knew Vas would find her. She'd tell him that they were her chosen lovers and that he just wasn't worthy. He was a failure in her eyes. He was weak and he would never, ever be the one to bestow upon her the seed that would grow the ultimate Rakyat warrior. It became almost a game for Citra, teasing him one minute, rejecting him the next, flaunting her new lovers in front of him at any chance she could get and urging him to kill himself whenever he began to crack. For Vars, this was torture, and as his one true love and the object of his desires continued to torment him, it pushed him ever closer to the brink of insanity. Then one day, like a gunshot to the side of the head, something inside Vars snapped, and he left the Rakyat never to return. Soon after this, with the blessing of the elders, Citra became the leader of the tribe, and without the temptations of a lusty vast to distract her, she became all-consumed with the search for the man who would help fulfil her prophecy. 
She began fanatically studying the ancient Rakyat mythology, amassing huge amounts of knowledge about the island's secrets, whilst also learning how to create powerful hallucinogenic drugs from the local plant life. But while Citra was busy doing all of this, a broken vase had started his own journey, and while this one also involved drugs, these drugs were way more pharmaceutical than spiritual. You see, sometime back in the early 2000s, the peaceful lives of the Rook Islanders were shattered forever as their lands were discovered and subsequently overrun by a large mercenary group known as the Privateers. Only a few boats arrived at first, landing on the beaches of the North Island, where the men on board would set up camp. These privateers began using the island as a base to run their lucrative gun and drug smuggling operations from, and for a while, Vast would watch them going about their business from the safety of the tree line. But it wasn't long until Vars' curiosity got the better of him, and soon he was spotted by the mercenaries who quickly exploited his newfound vulnerability and recruited him to their cause. What better way to get to know the island and its potential for becoming a port for criminal enterprises, they figured, than to have a native Rook Islander as their guide. Vars was more than eager to please his new friends, and he would do whatever little tasks they asked of him. But much later, in an effort to fill the void in his heart caused by Citra's rejection, and thanks to their prevalence amongst the privateers, he soon became hopelessly addicted to the drugs that the group were smuggling. This dependence, alongside the increasingly violent and often sadistic things he witnessed and was forced to do by the group over the years, began to take its toll mentally, and soon the fragile, heartbroken Vars was no more. Taking his place instead was an unpredictable, remorseless and chaotic fiend with a dark sense of humour and an even darker temper. As Vars got older and his notoriety amongst the privateers grew, so did his lust for power, and at some point around 2005, his wants and weaknesses were exploited yet again. Only this time, it was by the leader of the privateers, Hoyt Volker, who had arrived on the Rook Islands to set up a more permanent base on its large southern island. Now, Hoyt Volker was killed in 2012 by an American backpacker named Jason Brody, who we'll hear much more about later, but while he was alive, he was a really nasty piece of work. This guy was an international drug lord and a brutal human trafficker, whose immense wealth was built on the backs of those he made suffer. Born in Johannesburg, South Africa, in about 1967, Volker was the son of an abusive diamond miner, and using the cruelty he inherited from his father, he went about building the biggest slave, weapons and drug trafficking ring in the whole of the South Pacific, and he built it right there on the Rook Islands. But to control an empire that big, Volker was going to need to have a right-hand man, and that was where Vars came in. Thankfully, from this point onwards, we've got some more solid details on Vars' movements, thanks to a collection of recently declassified CIA documents. According to reports from an agent named Huntley, who was sent to the Rook Islands in order to keep tabs on Volker, Vars quickly rose up through the ranks due to his natural ability to lead. Vars' leadership style was rather chaotic to say the least, though, and most of the privateers who followed him did so out of fear rather than loyalty. At first, Vars was put in charge of Volker's marijuana fields, but soon he and his men graduated to kidnapping the native inhabitants of the island and selling them into slavery. This was a form of revenge for Vars, of course, but Citra and her Rakyat tribe quite rightly saw him as a monster. 
Once upon a time he was a member of their family, but now he and his men would terrorise, abuse and murder their way through the villages without remorse. Soon Vars's unconscionable actions started unsettling all but the most twisted of the privateers, and so Volker decided to give Vars his own faction of lunatics to lead, and they were called the Pirates. It's worth pausing in this story for a second to tell you about another very interesting detail about Vars that also arose from these declassified documents, and that was his alleged involvement in the death of North Korea's infamous dictator Kim Jong-il, the daddy of current infamous North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. This report, written by Huntley, featured a section that focused on Volker's gun-running activities, and it catalogued the various weapon caches that were found on the Rook Islands between 2010 and 2012. Partway through this report, Huntley starts talking about the abundance of handguns on the island, specifically the 44 Magnum, which is the gun that Clint Eastwood describes as the most powerful handgun in the world in the movie Dirty Harry. In this report, Huntley states, in his own distinctive way, that, and I quote, The Magnum revolvers here on Rook Island are actually part of a shipment originally bound for disgruntled North Korean dictator Kim Jong-il. Vars, always on the lookout for more firepower, intercepted the cargo ship, seized the handguns, and left a present in their place. No one knows what it was, but Kim Jong dropped dead the day it arrived. Coincidence? Do corporate lawyers have souls? But could Vars really have masterminded the assassination of the former supreme leader of North Korea? Huntley certainly seems to think so, but others outside of the CIA are unsure. Most people agree that Vars and his pirates almost definitely intercepted the shipment and that he probably did replace the guns with something else, potentially a chemical weapon cooked up by a notoriously drug-addled doctor who lived on the island during that time, but as to whether or not he was specifically aiming to harm Kim or if it was just a happy accident is something we'll probably never know for sure. But anyway, as stories of their deeds grew, Vars and his pirates quickly became notorious around Indonesia, and local islanders knew to either avoid the crew or risk death or worse. You see, Vars was a special kind of sadist, one who took way more pleasure in tormenting his victims than he did from the act of actually killing them. In fact, it was said that he'd often grow weirdly attached to the people whom he'd abused the worst, even to the point where sometimes he'd grieve for those he'd killed for days afterwards, before instantly snapping out of it when he found a new plaything to punish. There were reports of Vars tying an uncooperative kidnappee to some rocks and torturing him for hours before finishing him off by firing an RPG at him from almost point-blank range. RPG stands for Rocket Propelled Grenade, by the way, if you want to get an idea of just how messy that would have been. He would also sometimes force groups of prisoners that he couldn't sell into slavery to wear the bodies of recently slaughtered deer. Then he'd let them loose around the forests of the Rook Islands and hunt them for sport, even going so far as to take along a large bronze horn with him, which he'd blow like some kind of demented fox hunter as he and his men closed in on a kill. Other times he'd raid the yachts of unsuspecting holidaymakers who had inadvertently sailed into his territory, and if there was no one on board that he felt he could sell or ransom back to their families, he'd single one of them out and ask them to choose which of their fellow passengers should die instead of them. And then, after they'd made that agonising choice and watched as Vast murdered those that they had chosen in cold blood, he'd just end up killing everyone anyway. 
It's even been said that Vass would take some of his prisoners to the top of a remote cenote, which is basically a giant sinkhole with water at the bottom, and then he'd tie breeze blocks to his victims' feet and kick them off the side. But in a blatant display of calculated evil, he'd leave a few feet of slack on the rope between the victims' feet and the block. This was just enough length to give his victims a couple of seconds worth of hope as they swam upwards before the rope went taut and they drowned in agony an inch or two below the surface. One unnamed witness who was interviewed for a piece in the Jakarta Post in 2010 even told of a special field that Vass would take great pleasure in tending. In this field, the witness said they saw dozens of Rakyat villagers planted in rows like they were a crop of cabbages. The Rakyat were buried up to their necks in hot sand and then left to die of thirst in the blazing sun as giant black forest ants crawled into their mouths, noses and ears. Some of those exposed heads belonged to people who were long dead and they were now shriveled up and almost mummified by the elements, signifying that Vars had been planting this gruesome garden for many years. But the terrified witness also explained that some of those buried were still very much alive and that they could even hear some of the more fresh heads begging through blistered lips to be put out of their misery. To outsiders, tales of Vars' exploits were always seen as exaggerations. Most sane people just couldn't accept what they had heard as fact. It seemed almost unbelievable that anyone could be capable of these levels of cruelty. They saw them as nothing more than ghost stories, legends told to scare backpackers into staying close to all the money-siphoning tourist traps, or to keep curious explorers from stumbling onto one of the archipelago's many hidden weed farms. But then, in 2012, a series of events happened that introduced the whole world to Vas Montenegro and proved once and for all just how f***ed up and evil he actually was. And it all started when a group of American backpackers got into a bar fight in Bangkok. Anyone who's been to Thailand knows about Koh San Road. It's the traveller hub of the country due to the fact that there are many nearby coach and train stations which ferry people back and forth between all of Thailand's major tourist destinations. It's a rite of passage for anyone backpacking their way through Southeast Asia and back in 2012 it was also known as the place to disappear. In recent years, the local Bangkok government has attempted to clean up Koh San Road, but prior to this, Koh San Road was very much the backpacker ghetto that most people remember it to be. In those years, the street was crammed full of low-price hostels, and backpackers who stopped there on their way to other destinations would be able to visit the roadside stalls and pick up things like locally produced souvenirs, dirt-cheap pirate CDs and DVDs, used books, and even, if you knew who to ask, a cheeky fake ID or two. It was at night time that Kosan Road really came alive though, and as the sun went down, the street would get flooded by food vendors hawking exotic street snacks like deep-fried spring rolls, grilled meat skewers or barbecued insects. Overly enthusiastic touts would patrol the streets promoting Thailand's infamous ping-pong shows, and of course, there were countless bars and nightclubs where tourists could party their way through to the early hours of the morning. The social club was one such bar and it was there that Jason Brody, a 25-year-old backpacker from Los Angeles, and his six friends would spend their last night in Thailand. Jason was there celebrating with his younger brother Riley, 21, who had just earned his pilot's license, and his older brother Grant, who was 28 years old and an ex-army reservist. 
Also joining them were Jason's girlfriend, Lisa Snow, 24, an actor from Santa Monica whom Jason had met and fallen in love with at UCLA, and Grant's girlfriend of five years, Daisy Lee, a 26-year-old professional swimmer and part-time mechanic. Then there was Jason's best friend, Oliver Carswell, a 23-year-old pothead who used his rich father's black card to bankroll most of the trip. And finally, Keith Ramsey, a 24-year-old investment banker whom, by all accounts, still acted like the frat boy douchebag that he was at UCLA. CCTV recovered from the club shows that the night started off normal enough. The gang sat together in a booth near the back of the club where they drank beer, did sambuca shots and listened as Grant entertained them with madcap stories about his time in the army. Jason and Lisa were having a few relationship issues at this point so things were a bit frosty between them both but all in all the atmosphere stayed pretty light and everyone looked like they were having a good time. Or at least they were... But that was before Keith decided to hook up with a random woman on the dance floor. Some of the locals weren't too keen about the rather vulgar public displays of affection coming from the cocky American tourist. And moments after the woman leaves Keith to head to the bar, two men can be seen striding onto the dance floor where they proceed to start arguing with Keith and Jason before delivering some forceful pushes to the chest. Now, it's hard to see exactly what happens next due to the graininess of the footage and the amount of people on the dance floor, but it looks like Keith throws the first punch, knocking one of the men to the floor. We then see Grant run in to help, and as he and Keith lay the boot into the downed man, the second attacker gets floored by Jason, who hits him with a mean uppercut. Jason, it turns out, was quite the skilled athlete in college and would participate in many events, including wrestling and boxing. And so, even though he must have been fairly drunk by this point, he could still pack quite the punch. We know from statements made by Jason Brody after his escape from the Rook Islands that just after this fight, one of the house DJs named Doug helped them to escape from the club. And yes, I know DJ Doug sounds like the name of someone who would perform at a wedding reception rather than a Thai nightclub, but still, according to Jason, who had been chatting to him on and off throughout the night, he seemed like a decent kind of guy, despite the dodgy name. Doug shepherded the group through to an elevator at the back of the club where they made their escape, and it was here that Jason and his friends first learned about the Rook Islands. During their ride in the lift, Doug told the crew about a secret island paradise where absolutely anything goes down, and all they needed to do to reach it was to hire a plane and parachute on down. And of course, super pumped up after winning the fight in the club, they all agreed to go first thing the very next day. But what Jason and his pals didn't know at the time was that Doug was actually working as a spotter for Vass, and Doug's job was simple. He was tasked with luring unsuspecting tourists to the Rock Islands, where they would be kidnapped by the pirates and either sold into slavery, or, if their parents were rich enough, ransomed for huge amounts of cash. Doug, by the way, was never seen or heard of again after this point. According to statements given to the Royal Thai Police by the owners of the social club, no one named Doug had ever even worked there, so as far as the Thai authorities were concerned, Doug never even existed. The next morning, armed with a note from Doug containing the coordinates to the Rook Islands and a map of their intended landing zone, Jason and his pals made their way to a small private airfield on the outskirts of Bangkok. While Oliver paid for the flights and equipment, the others excitedly climbed into their jumpsuits and then onto the small propeller plane that would carry them to their jump destination, a point just above one of the main beaches on the North Island. 
From here on out, everything we know about the events that followed are taken from witness statements and media interviews given by two of the group's survivors, Jason and Lisa. They both describe the moment immediately after the jump as a bit of a blur, but after popping their chutes, the group were able to marvel at how beautiful the Rook Islands looked as they descended on it from above. The water below shimmered like diamonds as the sunlight played across its surface. The distant mountains and forests that surrounded them were the type of lush green that you only see in travel brochures. And in their designated landing spot, a small cove bordered by large jagged rocks, the gentle waves of a crystal clear sea lapped on a beach of golden sands. One by one, the group landed along the beach, and as they started to unclip their chutes, their whoops and hollers from the post-jump adrenaline surge echoed against the rocks that surrounded them. But all of a sudden, before they'd even had time to register the warmth from the sands beneath their feet, those cheers turned into screams as dozens of heavily armed pirates emerged from the entrance to the cove and ordered the Americans to their knees. Trapped in the cove with nowhere to run except for out into the open waters, Jason and his friends had no choice but to comply. Grant, whose military training had prepared him for situations like this, tried to keep everyone from panicking. But his words of reassurance were abruptly cut off by the butt of an AK-47, which a pirate slammed into the side of his head. With Grant stunned and barely conscious, the rest of the group fell into a terrified silence. One by one, they were tied by the wrists and ankles, gagged and then forced to stand in a line on the beach. Then a pair of younger pirates, who, according to Lisa, looked like they were just barely teenagers, started to gather up all of their possessions. Wallets, jewellery, cameras, mobile phones, passports, anything of value went into a large black duffel bag as the traumatised friends stood by and watched through teary eyes. And then, with the ransacking complete, the pirates marched the group up along the beach and into the depths of the forest. Details of that trek are hazy to say the least, but considering the overwhelmingly stressful situation the friends found themselves in, I'm not entirely surprised that the accounts are pretty muddled. What both Jason and Lisa agree on, though, is that at some point during this long march, Daisy managed to slip free of her bonds and escape into the forest. The others weren't quite so lucky though, because soon they reached what they would come to discover was a makeshift slave camp, where Vars and his men would bring their captives in order to sort them into hostages for ransoming or potential slaves to be sold to the highest bidder. The friends were split into three groups. Oliver, Keith and Lisa were determined to be the most valuable and therefore were to be ransomed back to their families straight away, whilst Riley, for reasons unknown, was passed along to Hoyt Volker, who planned to ferry him back to his base on the South Island. Jason and Grant, however, drew the shortest straw of all because they'd caught the eye of a certain someone who had decided that the two brothers would become his brand new playthings. According to Jason, what happened next was one of the most harrowing experiences of his life. By the time they all arrived at the slave camp, it was night time, and after being separated from the rest of the group, the brothers were taken to the back of the camp where they were tied up inside a small bamboo cage that measured approximately four feet by four feet. This cage had obviously been used fairly recently because it stank of urine and there was a small pile of human feces lying in one corner. With not enough room to either stand up nor lie down, and with rope tying them to the bars, the brothers were forced to sit there in the mud and waste as mosquitoes and bugs swarmed around them. 
Suddenly a man appeared by the side of the cage. In his hands he held Jason's mobile phone and a couple of passports. At first his mood was relaxed and he crouched casually by the cage as he complimented Jason on his phone. It almost sounded friendly at first, but as he started flicking through the passports his demeanour slowly became more threatening. I hope your mama and papa really love you because you two white boys look really expensive, the man told them as he read out their personal details from the passports. Grant, who, like Jason, was still gagged at this point, started getting agitated and began threatening Vass. The words were muffled and unintelligible due to the tape covering his mouth, but his tone was unmistakably full of rage, and Jason would later state that he was sure Grant had shouted something like, I'm going to f- kill you. This only served to antagonise the man, of course, and Jason remarked that it was almost like a switch had been flipped inside of him. In an instant, their captor went from being quietly sinister to just this seething ball of anger. All of a sudden, he was standing over them, screaming and shouting at them, intimidating them and mocking them, calling them his bitches and threatening to slice them open if they misbehaved. And then, as quickly as the anger exploded, it was gone. Once more, the man crouched down, but this time he addressed Jason directly. It's okay. I'm going to chill. I'm going to relax, he said in a chirpy manner, because you, me and your tough guy brother here are going to have a lot of fun together while we wait for your friend's money. He didn't have time to get another word out, though, because just then a thick South African accent rang out from behind him and called him away. That voice, of course, belonged to Hoyt Volker, and his command signalled the end of Jason Brody's first interaction with Vas Montenegro. For a couple of minutes afterwards, Jason just sat there in stunned silence as his brother struggled with his bonds. Then, all of a sudden, Grant slipped free of the rope, tying his hands. He ripped off his gag, and then he went to work untying Jason. Grant, even with his army training, was visibly panicked, but still he kept a cool head, and after checking that Jason wasn't hurt, he set about working on their escape. Grant returned to his original position in the cage and asked Jason to call the guard, which he did reluctantly. Then, as the pirate approached to find out what the commotion was, Grant sprang into action, reaching through the bars of the bamboo cage to grab the man by the head. He smashed the pirate's face against the bars until his body went limp, his face a mess of blood and teeth. Jason couldn't tell if Grant had killed the man or not, but one thing's for sure, he wasn't about to hang around to check his pulse to find out. With their only guard incapacitated, Grant quickly managed to break open the door to the cage and he and Jason slipped out into the darkness. From this point onwards, Jason stuck close to Grant and followed his every move as they snuck through the camp looking for their friends. They stuck to the shadows for the most part, but sometimes they had to crawl on their bellies underneath rickety bamboo huts that had holes in the floor, and through those they could see drunken pirates going about their business above. Even though it felt like they were making their way through literal hell on earth at this point, Jason never doubted Grant for a second. If anyone could get them all to safety, Jason thought, it was his big brother. But as the pair silently made their way through the camp, searching for Riley, Lisa and the others, Jason could hear Vars's voice tearing through the night and it chilled him to the bone. He was torturing captive Rakyat, hitting them, cutting them and calling them rejects before systematically shooting them all in the head. Anguished screams punctuated by booming gunshots followed the brothers to the edge of the camp, where they crouched in the darkness and took a moment to gather themselves. 
Jason was still terrified, of course, but Grant was determined to rescue Riley and their friends, and this confidence helped to soothe Jason's nerves. There was no way Grant was leaving anyone behind, and as he started to focus and formulate a plan of action, he stopped hunching over and rose up. Jason remarked that, in that moment, Grant seemed invincible, unstoppable. Jason was struck by a feeling that everything would be all right. But then, in an instant, it wasn't. Jason says he can't remember hearing the noise of the gunshot, but what he does remember next is Grant stiffening slightly before dropping to the floor like a ragdoll. A hole had appeared either side of Grant's neck, and warm blood was spurting out of it all over the dry jungle floor. It looked like tar in the darkness, and as Jason screamed his brother's name, he pressed his hands onto the wound to try to stem the bleeding. It wouldn't do any good, though. A bullet had smashed through Grant's neck and severed his spine just below the skull, and it took seconds for him to bleed out. As Jason watched in horror at the light fading from his brother's eyes, he once again heard Vars's voice. It was an echo in the back of his mind at first, but slowly it cut through Jason's trauma until it became a war cry, snapping him back into the moment. Run, Forrest, run! shouted Vars. I'll give you 30 seconds head start, and if this jungle doesn't eat you up alive, I will! In a later interview, Jason would remark that, as he bolted into the trees with bullets slamming into the ground around him and the sound of barking dogs hot on his heels, all his brain could think about was how odd it was that these monsters had watched Forrest Gump. It's bizarre the places your mind goes to when you're convinced you're going to die, he said. As the jungle grew thicker around him, Jason continued running at full pelt in a straight line. With the shouts of Vars' pirates growing ever closer, it was only a matter of time before he was caught and killed, or worse. So Jason powered forwards, using every ounce of energy he had left. And then, just as he was reaching his limits, the ground suddenly disappeared from beneath his feet. In his blind panic, he'd run right off the edge of a cliff, but miraculously, instead of falling to his death, Jason plunged into the fast-flowing waters of a river below, which quickly swept him away from his disappointed pursuers. Jason Brody had escaped, barely, but this event would mark the beginning of Vars' downfall. Jason ended up being pulled from the river a mile or so down from Vars' camp by members of the Rakyat tribe, and for the next few days they helped nurse him back to health in one of their villages. Back in Pirate Land, however, Vars was already busy toying with his remaining captives, Keith, Oliver and Lisa. After transporting them from his slave camp to a crude prison outpost built inside a cave in an area of the North Island named Sunset Cove, Vars began forcing the friends to record hostage videos, which he planned to use to extort money from their parents. Only one of these videos has ever been released into the public domain, and it shows Lisa tied to a chair in a dark room. She shows signs of having been tortured, she's visibly distressed, and she can be heard begging for her life as Vars pushes the camera into her face and asks her to repeat the words, Mom, Dad, I love you. We don't get to see Vars in the ransom video, but what we do get is a good glimpse into his fractured psyche. It's clear that he's having a lot of fun here. He's play-acting like he's a movie director, and despite Lisa's pleas to be released, he constantly asks her to repeat her lines and to cry real tears so that a ransom video is as authentic as it possibly could be. And he's doing it all in this weird, whispered voice that would almost sound kind and encouraging if you didn't know the full context of what was going on. 
He's obviously taking pleasure in pushing her mentally here, and the way he's leaning into Lisa's ambitions of becoming an actor to do so is just another example of how calculating Vaz could be when he was trying to torment someone. But really, it's the gentleness of his tone here that is the most subtly disturbing thing about it all. We never actually see Vaz commit any physical violence towards Lisa, and it's unclear if her wounds that we can see in the video were caused by him or by one of his more volatile pirate pals. But the way he's psychologically chipping away at Lisa with almost methodical patience and using her hopes and dreams as a weapon against her really is quite chilling. Things get especially ironic when one of his pirates interrupts the recording to warn of a security breach. Vas berates the man for swearing in front of his lead actress, cursing at him for ruining the scene before shooing him away. Then, unbelievably, Vas turns back to Lisa and apologises for his friend's lack of tact, before quickly switching back to director mode and once again resuming the psychological torture. Now, with a heavy content warning for distressing scenes, here is that video in its entirety. The video cuts off abruptly just as gunshots can be heard ringing out in the background. Turns out that the pirate was right to warn Vars about the security breach because Jason Brody, with quite a bit of help from the Rakyat, I might add, had actually managed to track Vars and his friends to Sunset Cove, and he was now shooting his way through the cave in a desperate bid to rescue Lisa. Now, I know Jason doesn't come across too well in some of the interviews he took part in immediately after his escape, and if you've seen them, you'll know what I mean. He's pretty arrogant about the whole thing, boasting about how his time on the island honed his reflexes and enhanced his strength and how killing the pirates, and I quote, feels like winning, but... I think you've got to hand it to him for having the balls to try to rescue his friends rather than just taking the easy route and escaping the island. The sensible thing would obviously have been to try to head to the mainland and seek out help from the Indonesian National Police, but God knows how long that would have taken and what would have happened to his friends in the meantime. Plus, this seems like a decent way to honour his brother, who undoubtedly would have done the same thing. In one interview with the Washington Post, Jason shared his brother Grant's last words, which were, I promised Dad I'd take care of you too. And this, he said, was one of the main reasons why he decided to risk his own life and go back for Riley and the others. Unfortunately for Jason, however, this rescue mission, as brave as it was, was doomed to failure. Just as Jason was about to reach Lisa's location, a pirate stepped out of the shadows and blindsided him with the butt of a rifle, knocking him unconscious. 
According to Jason, he was awoken later by the strong smell of gasoline and an unbelievable pain in the side of his head where he'd been struck by the weapon. He tried to touch the wound, but his arms were strapped to a wooden chair and he couldn't move. In front of him, also tied to chairs, were Lisa and Oliver. Both were awake and both looked terrified. Lisa would go on to tell the Indonesian National Police that while Jason was knocked out, the trio had been moved from the prison to the ruins of the old Island Port Hotel complex nearby, which, if you remember, was the location where Vars and Citra used to go for their secret meetups back in the day. But anyway, as Jason's vision began to clear, he saw Vars emerging from a crumbling wall behind Lisa. Well, OK, emerge is the wrong word, because Jason described Vars's entrance as more of a dance, with Vars almost gliding across the floor, spinning and turning and clutching a huge can of gasoline like a dance partner as he poured it liberally over the floor, walls and captive occupants of the room. Lisa describes the horror of this moment in her statement pretty well. She could hear Vars speaking, but the words wouldn't register because she was fixated on the lighter in his hands that he was struggling to ignite. Please don't light, please don't light, please don't light, she repeated over and over in her head, praying to any gods who would listen. And for some reason, it didn't light. Vars, who was flipping in and out of intense bouts of rage at this point, pushed the broken lighter into Jason's top pocket and wandered back over to the now understandably hysterical Lisa. She remembers then recoiling from his hand as he tried to stroke her cheek. She remembers how his voice suddenly became reassuring and gentle as he leant in close and whispered in her ear that everything was going to be okay. But most of all, she remembers an intense explosion of heat rising up in front of her as Vars casually threw a lit match into the pool of gasoline on the floor. Now, obviously, both Jason and Lisa managed to escape from this predicament, but how they did so is a little unclear. They both agree that Oliver was dragged off by one of Vars's henchmen before the fire could properly take hold, but Lisa's recollection of the events past that point are a little hazy, most probably down to a mix of smoke inhalation and trauma. Jason maintains that he was able to break free from his chair thanks to a section of the floor collapsing below him, and that he fought his way through the raging inferno back to where Lisa was trapped. Then he untied her and led her back down and out of the building just moments before the whole thing exploded. Now, if you think that sounds far-fetched and a little bit too Hollywood action movie to be true, I don't think anyone would blame you. But to be honest with you, you could say the same thing for most aspects of this case. So I think it's only fair to give Jason the benefit of the doubt here. But that's the thing about Jason Brody. You can tell from his interviews afterwards that for him, his time on the island was just one huge adrenaline rush. Other survivors like Keith and Daisy refused to even speak to the media, preferring to just try and move on as best they could. But Jason, he reveled in the attention. It should really come as no surprise then that after this fresh escape from the jaws of death, Jason's confidence skyrocketed, and so he quickly moved on to his next course of action, and that was to rescue his brother and the rest of his friends. To cut a long story short though, because boy does Jason love to talk a lot about himself during these interviews, soon after he and Lisa escaped from the burning hotel, Jason met up with Vars' sister Citra at one of the North Island's temples. Citra, who obviously had quite a few bones to pick with Vars herself at this point, what with him constantly terrorising and murdering all of her Rakyat friends, was more than happy to help point Jason in the direction of Vars's main base of operations. 
It was located on a small island just off the northeast coast of the North Island, and so off Jason trotted, armed only with a ceremonial rakyat knife, if he's to be believed, with the express purpose of turning Vars from the hunter into the hunted. Now again, this is all completely Jason's word and there's no physical proof of this happening either way, but allegedly Jason managed to sneak his way unseen into Vars' heavily guarded compound and make his way to the top floor of a warehouse where he confronted a solitary Vars. Alone and without backup, Vars became enraged that he'd been cornered. But instead of lashing out at Jason or trying to kill him, Vars pulled out a pistol and thrust it into Jason's hand, before ramming his own forehead against the barrel as he screamed things like, Come on, mother pull the trigger and end this misery! But according to Jason, a quick bullet to the head was far too good for the man who had brutally and mercilessly murdered his older brother. And so, using the knife that he brought with him to the compound, he stabbed Vars in the solar plexus at least three or four times. And then, as Vars bled out on the floor, Jason stood over him and watched as the light went out of his eyes, just like he'd been forced to do with his brother that terrible night back in the slave camp. Now, if you followed these events back when they were first reported in 2012, you'll know that the killing of Vars wasn't the end for Jason and his time on the Rook Islands. Against all odds, Jason finally managed to rescue his brother and the rest of his friends from Hoyt Volker, and soon after that, he, Lisa, Riley, Daisy, Oliver and Keith all fled the island by boat. Jason and Lisa split up soon afterwards. I think, understandably, Lisa couldn't cope with Jason's constant courting of the press. Heartbreakingly, Lisa gave up on her dreams of becoming an actor pretty much as soon as they arrived back on American soil, her enjoyment of performing forever tainted by Vars's mind games. Riley, Keith, Oliver and Daisy all tried their best to stay out of the limelight as much as possible though, and after spending a couple of years dodging the intense media circus that hungered for as much coverage of the events as it could get, all four settled back into living as normal a life as they possibly could after making it through such a traumatic experience. But that's not the end of Vars's story. There's one last chapter to this terrible tale that definitely needs to be mentioned in order to bring everything to a close. Because, aside from the local legends and ghost stories that were told to warn people away from Vars, the witness statements and interviews from after the fact, and that creepy-ass voice on Lisa's ransom video, there was actually little to no proof that Vars Montenegro even actually existed at all. His body was never found, the remaining pirates and privateers scattered to the winds, destroying most of the evidence before doing so, and the Rakyat, now safe and ready to rebuild, closed ranks to outsiders as they quickly took back control of the islands. This complete lack of physical evidence was so extreme that many people, including the Thai authorities and unbelievably the Indonesian National Police, who were the first to take the group's initial statements after their escape, would come out and suggest it was all a hoax. And this belief was definitely something that wasn't helped by the unbelievable claims that Jason continued to make all over the TV and internet. But then one day, back in early 2013, any ideas of those events being a hoax were shattered once and for all when an old VHS tape landed on the editor's desk at the Hollywood Reporter. It had Indonesian postmarks on the front, what would later be confirmed to be splatters of blood and urine all over the padded envelope, and written upon the tape's label in black biro were the words, the definition of insanity, with three little kiss X's scrawled underneath. 
And the reason it was sent to The Hollywood Reporter? Well, that was because this tape featured the prolonged torture and eventual murder of missing actor Christopher Mintz-Plass, a.k.a. McLovin, from the movie Superbad. And so, of course, new sites the world over went into overdrive. The so-called McLovin tape is an incredibly distressing watch, and it's one that's sure to cause nightmares for the majority of people who view it. Nowadays, it's impossible to find on anything but the dark web, but a few years ago, a leaker released the whole thing onto YouTube, and while it was taken down shortly after it was uploaded, copies were made and passed around those true crime obsessives who were curious and brave enough to watch it. The video itself only lasts for about eight minutes, but what makes it so compelling to watch, even given the terrible things on show, is that not only is it the only visual record that exists of Vas Montenegro that we know of, but it also contains actual solid proof that none of those Rakyat legends or ghost stories were made up, and that none of the Brody gang's official statements or interviews were fabricated at all. They were all true, every single nightmarish part of them. Christopher Mintz-Plass and his cameraman Barry Sanders were reported missing about a week before Jason Brody and his friends landed on the Rook Islands. They'd been in the process of recording the pilot for a new extreme travel show called The Far Cry Experience, in which Chris would try to conquer the wilderness and beat the odds in a variety of hostile environments, and their first port of call was Indonesia. News of the pair's disappearance came as quite a shock, but as time went on and multiple search teams came up empty-handed, it was eventually feared that a small boat that they had chartered may have capsized, leaving them to drown at sea. But when the McLovin tape turned up, those fears were quickly replaced by something worse, and that was the knowledge that both Chris and Barry had been brutally tortured and then murdered. But what actually is shown on the tape? Well, it opens with Vas Montenegro standing on a beach. He's quite muscular, but not large, more athletic, I'd say, and he looks to be around 5'9", 5'10", in height. He's wearing this bright red vest top, and his hair is shaved either side to form a kind of short and stubby mohawk. Running from the top left of his eye, right across the left side of his head, is this huge scar, like he's been whacked on the skull with a machete or something. And he has this really bizarre half-goatee thing that covers part of his chin in the shape of the head of a pitchfork. Just like in Lisa's Ransom video, here Vass is playing a role, but this time he's not a director. This time he's mimicking Mintz Plass and acting like the host of a TV show. Now, obviously, the subject matter here is about to get pretty dark, but honestly, it would be amiss of me not to mention just how at-home Vass looks in front of the camera. He looks like he's having the time of his life as he welcomes an imaginary audience to his show, and he's all smiles as he flamboyantly spins around like an overexcited game show host searching for his co-star, who, in this case, is Christopher Mintz-Plass. As Vass drops to his knees on the sand, the camera follows him, and we see Chris buried up to his neck. He has a black eye and his nose is broken and bleeding, but that doesn't stop him from screaming, F*** you, you psycho, back at Vass. This causes Vass's game show host Facade to crack for just a few seconds as he pulls a gun out and holds it to Chris's head. But then, as if he's remembering he's supposed to be performing, he snaps back into his role as a presenter and once again addresses the audience, telling the ladies and gentlemen who are watching at home to tune in for his daily tortures. Here's a short clip of that moment so you can experience it for yourselves. But again, this does come with a content warning for distressing scenes. 
Welcome back to my show. Take a look at my island. Christopher Minsplatz, where are you? Chris, say hello to the internet peoples. F you, you psycho! Oh, I'm sorry, what did you say, Chris? What the f are you saying? Okay, I did not decide if I want to kill Chris or not. What? I want to know what you people think. The video quality of what happens next varies wildly, as Vast then tortures Chris over the course of a whole week. And just a heads up for all you eaters out there, this next bit is going to get pretty hard to listen to. It starts with Vars using a pair of rusty pliers to tear a tooth out of Chris's mouth. And while Chris is screaming in raw pain, Vars just kneels there giggling to himself, occasionally turning to smirk at the camera before running up to it to excitedly show the freshly extracted tooth to the audience. The next torture sees Vars using a gigantic truck battery to deliver a sustained electric shock to Chris's head. As Chris screams, vomits and eventually passes out, Vast can be heard chuckling and talking to himself about how funny it all is. On the third day, things switch up from brutal physical torture and we get another good look at how Vast likes to use hope and the promise of mercy to further torment his victims. After being heard promising Chris some water and fruit, Vast leaves the frame before quickly returning with what looks to be a giant fish bowl. Vars then sits behind Chris and tells him to open his mouth, which Chris does eagerly. Horrifically though, it turns out there's actually no water in the fish bowl at all, because as Vars gently places it over Chris's head, it becomes apparent that the bowl in fact holds three large tarantula spiders, which begin to crawl all over Chris's face as a chirpy Vars plays bongos on the bowl and delivers a pair of smug thumbs-ups to the camera. From there on out, it's just scene after scene of unbelievable acts of cruelty against Chris. In one, Vars covers him with a bucket and throws firecrackers inside it. In another, he stands over him and urinates all over his face. And in one of the sickest things it's possible to witness, he feeds a grateful Chris a steak meal, complete with a glass of wine, before informing Chris that the meat he had just eaten was actually taken from the leg of his dead companion, Barry Sanders. Finally, on the last shot of the video, Vars arrives to torture Chris once again, only to find out that he isn't moving. When Vars realises that Chris isn't breathing, he suddenly drops his facade again, and for a split second, it almost looks like he's panicking, like maybe the old Vars is still inside there somewhere after all. In that moment, Vars quickly drops to his knees and tries to resuscitate Chris with mouth to mouth, but when that fails and it becomes obvious that Chris has passed away, Vars, in what we can only guess to be a rare display of remorse, begins to act like he's genuinely mourning for a lost friend. He rests his forehead against Chris's and sits there motionless for a couple of seconds, before the silence is broken by a pirate who enters the frame to tell Vars that a group of skydivers have landed on the island. Then, in a perfect showcase of just how quickly Vars could move from one obsession to the next, the grief-stricken look on his face changes to this gigantic, beaming smile, and he gets up and runs excitedly out of the frame towards the unsuspecting Jason Brody and his unfortunate friends. And that, my friends, was the utterly twisted tale of Vars Montenegro, the pirate king of the Rook Islands. But is this really the end of his story? 
with no body found and with multiple eyewitnesses coming forward with reports of a man matching Vars's description being sighted in and around the Caribbean island of Yara, perhaps his running with Jason won't be the final chapter after all, especially as some of the more believable sightings have happened as recently as October 2021. I'll keep you posted if I hear anything else, of course, but for now it's time to thank you all for listening to the show. This was just the first of hopefully many episodes of Virtual Criminality, so if you enjoyed it, do follow at Virtual Crime Pod on Twitter, subscribe to this podcast wherever you can to hear the next episode as soon as it's uploaded, share it with your true crime stroke video game obsessed friends, and come back soon for Virtual Criminality Episode 2, where I'll be exploring the criminal origins of Leyland Van Horn, aka Serial Killer X. (laughs) 